0: Welcome back to 10 Blocks, the podcast of City Journal. This is your host for today, Seth Barron, associate editor of City Journal. After the blackout last month that affected a large swath of Manhattan, New York's energy infrastructure became a hot question. Joining me today to discuss that issue and other questions related to energy generally is City Journal contributor James Miggs. Jim was for many years the editor of Popular Mechanics and writes widely about science, technology, and culture. We'll be back with Jim after a short break. Jim, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's great to be back. So the recent blackout was caused perhaps by an overheated transformer. Now, how can we fix the grid so it delivers steady supplies of electricity without
1: interruption? Well, we've always had blackouts, you know, and we will never have a grid that is 100% failure-free. Those transformers fail all the time. Usually, the grid is set up so that they can just route around the problem. You'd be amazed at how many minor problems that could be major problems happen You know, every week that Con Ed and other utilities deal with. But my worry is that these challenges are getting harder and certain government policies are making it harder for the utilities to cope with the ordinary wear and tear on the system. But what kind of policies? Well, there's a few things. Uh, One is uh, the the green energy policies that are being pushed, certainly in New York State by Governor Cuomo. And uh, California is another example, which on their face aren't necessarily bad ideas. But the people who are pushing to have, say, 50 percent of electricity come from renewable sources, as Governor Cuomo is in, in New York, ultimately up to 100% in California by 2045, I think they've mandated. They're doing those mandates without really appreciating just what a huge challenge this is for the grid itself. I'm not even talking about the challenge of putting up all those wind farms and solar panel arrays, which is is massive and I don't think we'll ever get done in the time schedule. But I'm just talking about the problem of distributing all that electricity around the region because when you have – A few big power plants pumping out power that can be turned up or down as needed. It's relatively simple to get that power to where the customers are. But imagine instead you have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of small solar panels on rooftops, sending power back the other way down the lines, feeding power into the grid in a kind of a random fashion. Well, someday that will work maybe pretty well and we'll have a very sophisticated computerized grid that can distribute all that. But we don't really have that right now. And so what happens is the transformers are under more stress. The management of all this power is more difficult. And it's especially hard on sunny, warm days where you've got tons of power being produced all afternoon while the sun is shining. All the the other sources of energy have to be pretty much turned off because there's too much electricity flowing around the the grid. But then what happens? You know, around 7 o'clock, the sun is going down. People are coming home from work. They're turning on their air conditioners. They're turning on their microwaves. And the the solar power has just disappeared. So you have this massive management challenge of now you also have to crank up all these other sources. And we're not really prepared to handle that efficiently yet. And yet we're mandating these alternate sources of power that whatever the pros and cons are, we're, we don't really have the technological capability to, to, to deal with without increasing the risk of things going wrong. But isn't that really just a um
0: more of a good reason for the green new deal to be uh enacted because then we can really ramp up investment and building a smart grid and building big batteries that can maybe hold the power that's the extra power from the day and then we could use it at
1: night that's the plan you know that's everybody who who supports this kind of policy, we'll always we say, well, we're going to need, we're going to have storage. Well, we are nowhere close to having the kind of storage we would need. Remember, it's not just for a few hours when the sun goes down. It might be for a couple of months in the wintertime. You know, the, the, the a lot of this is highly seasonal, especially in a place like New York. I mean, do you really want to run the Buffalo power grid on solar power in February? Have you ever been to Buffalo? The sun doesn't shine a lot. <laughs> so it's um this is not an argument for the green new deal and in, in fact uh, the green new deal is really typical of the kind of green thinking that is based more on on kind of emotion and wishful thinking than on really understanding how the how the grid works and i'm not opposed to transitioning our el- electricity to supri- uh, supply to uh, lower carbon sources. I'm a big fan, as as City Journal readers know, of nuclear power. Um, working on another piece about that right now. And here's the irony: a lot of the same people who are supporting wind and solar are actually shutting down, advocating shutting down nuclear plants. These are the most dependable sorts of power. They're the biggest source of of carbon-free power. Uh, and yet, people are saying, "Well, it's not renewable because there's not an infinite supply of uranium ore." You know, there's plenty for hundreds of years, but we use this word "renewable" to mean green and everything good. But the real issue isn't whether it's renewable. The real issue is: is it environmentally friendly? Is it does it make economic sense? And when you look at things that way, the wind and solar have pros and cons, but they have a lot of cons that are being ignored. Nuclear has a lot of pros that are being ignored by by some advocates. Not all. There's there's quite a few people, including some of the candidates for, uh, you know, running for the Democratic nomination for president who are supporting nuclear. But it's it's a little bit depressing how many environmental groups don't. Well, hold on a second here. I mean, you, you're saying that nuclear
0: should be counted as a form of green energy and that it's, uh, that it's it's not harmful to the environment and it's basically renewable. But, I mean, nuclear power is has the potential to cause catastrophic damage that can destroy entire countries and regions, as we saw, you know, anyone who watched that Chernobyl movie will know. And, uh, you know, Three Mile Island almost melted down. Now, that was 40 years ago. And then in Japan, they had that major problem. So, I mean, clearly, moving away from nuclear power seems
1: like the right idea. That's the standard argument. And if you ever go on Twitter or social media and talk about nuclear power, immediately people come like, haven't you heard of Chernobyl? Didn't you see the movie on HBO? And The reality is that even Chernobyl only killed a couple hundred people. And that was the worst imaginable accident. One that happened in, you know, an East Bloc country that was under Soviet style management that was extremely negligent. Not only was the accident the result of incredible negligence in the design and management of the plant, but in the aftermath, they covered it up, they hid it. They didn't have a free press to expose what was going on. That kind of accident can never happen today. And even so, the tens of thousands of casualties, the hundreds of thousands of casualties that were predicted by anti-nuclear extremists never materialized. So, on the other hand, In the years since, hundreds of thousands of people have died from the pollution from coal-fired power plants. So you could make an argument, and this has been made by some climate activists actually, that every nuclear plant actually saves lives by replacing the power from a coal-fired plant. And, and I, I really believe that's true. All energy sources have their risks. You know, we had, um, you know, an oil rig blew up in the, in the Gulf of Mexico and killed 11 people. An oil train derailed in Quebec and killed nearly 50 people. You know, coal mines collapsed. Nuclear, in, compared to those other sources, is actually very, very safe. And I say that as someone who lives pretty close to the Indian Point plant up in, up the Hudson in Westchester County.
0: Hmm. Well, that's an interesting point. Um... Let me, just sticking to the question of energy in New York, um, Governor Cuomo, he's shuttered Indian Point.
1: It's not closed yet, but it's on its It's, way to be closed within the next two years. Right,
0: They're decommissioning Indian Point, and he's blocked fracking in all of New York State, and he's not allowing pipelines to be built, uh, gas pipelines. So I guess that's cut off, uh, you know, development in parts of Westchester, and even on Long Island. Um, but he's going to replace it all with uh, massive turbines, wind turbines, off the coast of Long Island. Are there any issues with, I mean, you were talking about transmission and distributed networks. Um, is it? Is there a problem with with moving electricity hundreds of
1: miles that yes, way, yes, it's really hard. It's really hard, and you, for a number of reasons. For one, you lose a lot of it in the transmission process. So the farther away the power is generated, the less efficient it is in terms of you actually being able to use that power in your house. The other thing is we don't have the grid to transmit all that power. We would need to build huge arrays of, of new transmission lines. Talk about you know a, a, a NIMBY nightmare, and we've seen that really many parts of the country, when people do try to build new transmission lines, when they try to build big um, wind farms, there is a lot of local resistance. Just because it's green doesn't mean people want it in their backyard, and it's become very difficult to to get these things built. I I find it kind of ironic, people always say, well, we can't have nuclear power because it just takes forever to build new plants, and it does, it takes way too long. How long does it take to build a transmission line halfway across New York State? That could take decades. By the time you get all the approvals and fight all the lawsuits and and, and get through that whole process, so I think that there is a lot of unrealistic thinking on the part of the governor.
0: Well, how about um, Mayor De Blasio made a deal with Hydro Quebec to build a, um, you know, to buy extra power from there, and that's going to, I mean, uh,
1: that's green power, I guess. If you don't mind flooding native lands and massive ecosystems, hydropower is great. I find it kind of funny. A lot of environmentalists are celebrating that form of renewable energy. And once you build the dam, it is very clean. There's a lot lot to be said for it. But I grew up in the era when we were fighting dams, you know, and we certainly— don't want to go back to building lots more of them, uh, I don't think, uh, and, and drowning ecosystems when there are better alternatives available. As for the deal to buy hydropower from Quebec, New York State already buys tons of, of power from Quebec. And when we talk about clean energy, a lot of times it's not stuff being generated locally. A lot of it is just the the, uh, the, the power from the huge hydroelectric dams in, in Quebec that we're talking about. The issue is we don't quite have the capacity to bring all of that power down the Hudson that we need. So again, there is a plan in the works to build more transmission capacity. If we kept our nuclear plants open, we probably wouldn't need it. Um, so what is the the barrier to building more nuclear plants? There are a number. One is kind of depressing, not that easy to fix, which is just we've gotten really bad at building large capital intensive projects, whether public or private in this country and in much of the West. Um, China can build nuclear plants pretty economically, Korea does it pretty well, but in the U.S. and even in in um, parts of Europe, it, the, the costs have, have gone up in a, in a frightening way. Doesn't mean it's still not worth trying, but boy, that they have gone wildly over budget, and, and that's alarming, and there's no easy answer to that. There are new designs coming along that are much smaller, could be built in factories rather than on site, and then just delivered by truck, and instead of having one giant reactor, you might have 10 or 12 set up in an array. You know, conceivably in a place like an old coal-fired power plant that shut down, you build a bunch of Small nuclear reactors there instead hook them right up to the grid. I think this is promising. It might it might be an altern- uh, an alternative, but in the short run, the key, what a lot of environmentalists are saying now uh, and and others is let's keep the ones we've got running. You know we've invested in them. They're perfectly good. Most of them could run for another 40 years with no problem. Let's work to figure out how they can get properly paid for the power they produce and and keep those going. That will also help with these issues of grid reliability, which are, again, being exacerbated by uh, by these alternative energy sources that are so erratic in their production of power. Um, Now, you've written also about
0: California and its power issues. Um, and something about
1: wildfires.
0: Yeah. Could, you, could you elaborate on this? Well,
1: you know, the last two years, uh, 2017 to 2018, were the worst in the history of the state for wildfires. More than a million and a half acres burned in both those years. And and last year, you know, over, I think, close to 100 people were killed um, in, in those fires. And I
0: assume that's due to climate change?
1: Well, everybody says it's due to climate change. New York, uh, excuse me, California has always had fires. Climate change will probably make that worse. May already be having an impact. Uh, but I'm always a little suspicious when people immediately say climate change. When it's very difficult to attribute, you know, these these trends that have a lot of year-to-year variability, and say, oh, well, there's more thunderstorms this year. It must be climate change. And then the next year, if there's less thunderstorms, well, what caused that? You know. Um, all that said, California is in a bad situation in terms of fires. Always has been. Looks like it might be getting worse. And the power companies are blamed for any fire related to their equipment, whether they, caused it, uh, uh, whether they caused it through negligence or not. So for example, I think I said this on the last podcast, if, if somebody, a truck crashes into a power line, it goes down and then it causes a fire that burns down a neighborhood, the power company is responsible for that even though they weren't the ones that knocked over the, the pole. This is a. a um, you mean like in a in a tortious sense in like yes in, li- in terms of liability. So this puts the power companies in an absolutely untenable position because they're also required to deliver power to all these remote communities, where their power lines have to pass through this intensely fire prone environment. Now there is evidence that PG and E, the biggest. Um, you know they didn't do as good a job trimming undergrowth and vegetation as they should have. They, you know, they might have. You know, there's things they could have done better. But I have a hard time seeing how, under the current rules and this current fire environment, any utility could uh, could operate without under this cloud, this liability cloud. Who would ever want to invest in that company? And PG&E actually has said, I think they've said they they estimate their liability from the last couple of years at about 30 billion. They declared bankruptcy early this year. The California legislature has a a plan to help give them a little bit of liability or significant liability relief, but here's the part people aren't really talking about. So why are people living in those areas in the first place? And some of it has to do with lack of the anti-development policies in the California cities. So if you can't afford an apartment in LA or, or Oakland or San Francisco or Burbank, then you wind up. Going, you know, farther field. About a third of people in California live in what's called the wildland-urban interface. It's basically you build your house out at the edges of the forest. And that town of Paradise that burned in the, in the the what was called the campfire is a great example of that. Lots of middle-income retirees who couldn't afford to stay in the towns where they lived, and of course, living in the Sierra foothills is lovely, but the but. You know, the, fire, the power company isn't ex- allowed to charge a big surcharge for serving people in these fire prone areas. So we've, we've created a slow motion c- catastrophe that is, um, that is very difficult to unwind. I mean, you can't tell all these nice people that they got to leave their retirement home that they saved up for. But the real problem isn't the fire, it's the people in the way of the fire. If the area was uninhabited, just a few ranches or something that fire swept through there it's no big deal those areas have always burned every you know 50 years or something the trees survive if you look at a picture of the paradise it's really interesting the houses are all burned the trees still have pine needles on them the trees mostly survived um so because they've they're evolved to survive fire so these power companies are in a position of supplying power to these remote communities there's lots of people moving to those communities and then the power companies are forced to pay the entire tab for these communities that have grown explosively over the last few decades. It's just, and it, it, we, it's, we just can't continue on, down that path. There's no simple solution, but we can't just pretend like the power companies will always have plenty of money to pay every time this happens.
0: I have related a question that's related to, to what something you said, um, and it's not really on the topic of energy, but, um, you know, we've seen uh, a large uptick in what they call, you know, natural disasters that have caused displacement of people and floods and hurricanes, or, you know, say in the Outer Banks or in the, down in the, the Gulf of Mexico. And I have a question. Um, is it the case that things are getting worse or is it that we are now, we've developed out to... Areas that maybe used to be considered uninhabitable or barely inhabitable, and that, you know, what appear to be major disasters, killing people, displacing them, causing billions of dollars worth of damage, it's really just because people are living where they shouldn't be living, and, you know, we have a huge population
1: now, a much larger population than we did in the
0: past, uh, you see what I'm getting yeah. Here? So there's
1: actually a name for that. It's called the expanding bullseye effect, and there've been some interesting papers studying this. So I'd take the Outer Banks. When I was a little kid, I used to go down there, and it was mostly just sand dunes. It wasn't very inhabited. So if a, if a hurricane hit, it might hit a few motels and a few houses, but not a lot. Today, it's wall to wall houses in certain areas. So if hurricane hits, all of a sudden it's like, wow, $5 billion of damage to this area. If it was just sand dunes, that wouldn't happen. And as someone who leans more towards the libertarian end of the spectrum, I say, what incentives did we put in place to encourage that? Certainly if you look at Florida, there are massive incentives to encourage people to build in the most hurricane-vulnerable areas. And then, you know, it's not just the disaster relief that people get after a storm. It's help with insurance. It's it's the, it's a state-run insurance. It's federal flood insurance. So there are, are, are a whole bunch of programs that, um, that actually subsidize the risk uh, mm-hmm. that um, – and who wouldn't want to live on the beach? Of course, but it's a bad place for people to be building condos and stuff. And um, and they've actually been pretty lucky. Florida's had fewer big hurricanes in the last fifteen years than in some previous eras. When it does come, I, I guarantee you. And you know, and it costs you know a hundred billion dollars to fix. Everybody's going to be saying, "Well, this is an, a, a result of climate change." But the same thing could have happened without climate change. The problem is all of the construction that is put in harm's way. When there are other ways to develop other ways to build that are a lot safer, both in terms of flooding and in terms of fires. There are ways to to do it that are a lot safer, but they require some choices. At the very least, I, I feel like we shouldn't be subsidizing people to go and live and put themselves and their and their, their homes in areas we know to be dangerous. If they want to do it on themselves and pay for it, pay for their own Insurance out of pocket, okay, but why should the rest of us be subsidizing it?
0: Um, you know, I, I sort of wonder, because you hear a lot about climate change and the rising sea levels and mm-hmm. that Florida will be underwater soon and Manhattan could be underwater soon, um, but nobody seems to be leaving these areas, yeah, <laughs> and people are still building, and insurance companies are still insuring.
1: Well, some insurance companies are, are becoming more cautious, um, you know ab- about different risks, but um, but but we don't know. You know there there are all these models that, that talk about sea level rise. Um, um, we don't know how quickly that might happen if it happens. Um, but I think it's hard for people to um, to look long term. And yet it's funny if you fly over some of these areas, you realize the stuff that's above sea level is. Is barely above sea level. You know, like you know, sea level rise or not, you you say like, why did anyone think to build on this sandbar? You know, you go out to the Hamptons and you realize like any storm could just wash away big chunks of some of those those islands. Um, and yet we we pretend we'd like to think that these things should be permanent. I think in many cases we'd be better off retreating to more defensible terrain. Um, and um, you know it's and, and if people do insist on living in those places, they certainly can't complain when the inevitable happens.
0: So let me just you're you're, you're um you've written about popular you know popular science and uh, technology. Uh, so y- you have your thumb on the um, on the pulse of what's happening. Let me just throw a few ideas at you and see see what you think about like in terms of the future of energy. Mm-hmm. Um, what about uh, wireless transmission of energy. Yeah,
1: Tesla. You know the great, the great inventor uh, after whom the car is made. He demonstrated that back in the early 20th century. It's possible, but super inefficient. So don't count on it over long distances. You can do it over short distances. They already do. You know, um, you have this inductive charging for your phone and stuff like that. But uh, but it, you can't. It, the amount of energy it would take to do it over long distances is. I imagine feasible. there must be like an exponential drop off in yeah. intensity. Yes, exactly.
0: Um, what about wave energy? Like having yeah uh, machines out in the tides. Right. That I've always capture- loved
1: this. I've always thought like, yeah, you know, there's so much energy in the oceans. It. There have been a lot of experiments, feasible. You know, but all, every. Idea like this also has its own environmental downsides. You're you're putting all these structures out in these marine ecosystems that other, you know, that that porpoises and whales and fish, you know, have to travel through. I, I think there are certain places where um, where that could work to some degree. Um, I don't think it'll be a major contributor to our to our energy. Um, uh to our energy supply. There's there's also there's tidal forces and currents running. I mean the East River, there's been an experimental project in the East River right off the the side the east side of Manhattan to put some rotors deep in there. There's huge tidal currents through there and they generate some power. It's kind of a cool idea. Um and it's just not enough. It's probably not I mean, you know, we may get to a day where we get three percent from this and six percent from that and ten percent from that, but you know, again, I hate to keep harping on nuclear power. We have a system right now that produces massive amounts of power efficiently and safely. Um, like, before we outthink it, let's make sure we're using the, the, the most straightforward sources that we have. I, I, there's one nuclear advocate who always says if nuclear had been invented last year, everyone would be ecstatic. They'd be like, this is it, this is the solution. How about cold fusion? Yeah, someday maybe. Uh, you know, there have been so many scandals around that. But leaving aside cold fusion, you know, as, as everybody knows, fusion is the process of, of fusing hydrogen atoms. In, 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 in that process, huge amounts of energy are released. It's what powers the sun. It's what powers um, um, hydrogen bombs. But um, to do it, you have to generate massive quantities of heat in and, and a very compressed space. They've been working on this since... I grew up near Princeton, New Jersey, near one of the the great research projects on that. It was always said, oh, it's going to be 20 years away. Some people say it's still 20 years away. But there's actually some really cool research on smaller reactors that can do this. Uh, Small scale. Bill Gates has invested in others. They're actually getting some venture capital money coming into this field. There's a team from MIT that set up a company that's working on this. So not cold fusion, hot fusion, but on a much smaller scale. You know, if this became something that could roll out massively, it would be a huge boon to the planet. You know, there's a lot of people out there who still need electric power. And, uh, you know, the world is becoming richer. It's becoming industrialized. People are moving to cities. They're going to need electric power. They're not going to stay in little villages cooking over dung fires forever. And so... It would be nice to have a nice clean source and a a, a cheap source of that power. So, you know, it's a long shot in the near term, but fusion could be that. I don't think we should be betting the farm on it.
0: Is there a concern with wind power that if you use the wind to to, – if you capture the wind with a turbine to generate electricity, that that wind can't be used for something else such as drying the dew?
1: Well, it's interesting. There's been a little bit of research on this. And theoretically, if you put up enough wind turbines, it does slow down the, the ground-level winds somewhat. Who knows, that could have you know, various uh, pernicious impacts down, down the road or downstream from those, those installations. I have a hard time believing we'll ever you know, you know, develop any area to that extent. But here's what does happen. Any bird or bat flying through that area, is really vulnerable and wind farms already kill, you know, tens of thousands of of some of the most vulnerable vulnerable birds like eagles, large raptors and lots and lots of bats. And bats are really under stress today uh, for for various reasons. So there are certain species of bat that could just go extinct if we continue building Are they just building. running into it or do they get caught in a vortex? No, they get they're just running into it. It's funny. You look at those rotors, it's like they're not going around that fast. How come a bird just can't just fly around it? But that's the whole rotor. At the wing tip, it might be going 100 miles an hour. You know, they, they, they don't see it as a, in a whole entity the way we might understand it, what it is. So they might fly near the edge and not un- realize that that big guillotine is coming down on them at a, at a rate of speed they can't anticipate.
0: Well, well from uh, massive rotors to dams to desktop nuclear reactors, I feel like we've covered a huge amount of uh, territory here. Uh, We'd like to hear your comments about today's episode on Twitter at City Journal, hashtag 10Blocks. If you like our show and want to hear more of it, please leave ratings and reviews on iTunes. This is your host, Seth Barron. Jim Miggs, thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, it's always a pleasure, Seth.
0: Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors,
1: contributors, and special guests.